Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, according to their own responses to a state survey, indigenous youth are abusing hard drugs at higher rates than their peers. We're trying to get our voices out there, let families know that we're here to support them. Coming up, we'll learn how one school district is using indigenous identity and culture to prevent drug abuse. We'll also explore disparities in higher education funding and credential attainment and the work being done to close those gaps. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. For today's show, we're going to spend some time on education. Coming up later, we'll head to a school district that's using indigenous identity and culture to prevent drug abuse. And we'll also hear from a pretty smart Coloradan who happens to be Time's Kid of the Year. But first, we'll start with a focus on higher education. That's because roughly 75% of Colorado jobs require more than a high school diploma or GED, according to research from the Georgetown Center on Education and the Workforce. According to state data, only about half of Colorado adults have that level of education. To address the disparity, the state is promoting a goal to increase post-secondary attainment, but it's not a goal without challenges. Jason Gonzalez covers higher education with Chalkbeat Colorado, and he's been looking into how the state is trying to achieve that goal, what stands in the way of reaching it, and how all of this is affecting Coloradans on the day-to-day in the meantime. He's also recently reported on the community of Craig in Moffat County, where some leaders are looking to post secondary education opportunities to help transition out of an economy centered around coal. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the state's master plan. It keys in on four specific goals to raise the percentage of Coloradans with post-secondary education. Tell us about the plan and what it's prioritizing. plan is to get 66% of adults statewide with a credential or degree. It has four goals um, to increase the credential completion, erase any gaps in completion among different types of students, um, improve overall success. So students who are already in college and getting them all the way through and then invest. So how is that plan playing out? Are wheels in motion already or is this something that's going to be coming down the pike, say, after the pandemic? So wheels are in motion already. And Governor Jared Polis has invested into colleges. The pandemic has definitely set us back. We've created a different funding formula that incentivizes some of these pieces within the Colorado Rises master plan. And that will allow us, uh, and what colleges say, allow us to get to a point where we can really focus on certain groups of students. What we're really missing from all of this is sort of that investment piece and some very specifics to adults. Pieces like more of state investment in just trying to attract adults to college. We, we do a lot with national, federal grants. So really, the state hasn't hit on the investment piece entirely yet. And we've been in a place where investment generally in, in college has dipped over the last few decades. So it's clear that the state is in need of more skilled workers, and the state certainly feels that way. Yet it is providing little help for adults who are actively trying to work towards a college degree. 
that seems like a big disconnect from the master plan you were just telling us about. In a way, it is. And I think part of that is from what I'm hearing that we've, we've had a specific goal over the past about 10 years or so on increasing the number of options for high school students, really creating a robust system around that. And we are considered a national leader in getting uh, high school students career and technical education early but there's still a large segment of adults uh, across the state who don't have those sort of options available to them and they're already in the workforce in some capacity trying to you know better themselves better their families and as a state we just don't have all of the pieces in order for those adults to reach college and then succeed in college and get the jobs that they need even if the jobs are there and are out there right now. Hmm. How is the pandemic affecting students as they work on these type of career technical credentials? I know that, for example, a lot of hands-on skill-based courses have slowed or delayed due to health measures. Is that something that officials are, are thinking about? It definitely is. Colleges across the state are trying to grapple with just graduating students, getting them all the way through the coursework, uh, especially when not every student is able to be there or has different concerns. I featured a student, Victoria Browning. She went back to school for a third time to further her education. And even though she had a lot of support from a, a federal program, it was taking her a lot more time to get through the the actual coursework that she wanted to do because of the pandemic. So she was taking it in bits and pieces throughout the pandemic, and it's really slowed down how fast she could get her education. And that's something that it's affecting a lot of adults right now and will affect adults into the future. Well, speaking of affecting adults into the future, I wanted to talk about another story you published recently about Craig, a community in Moffat County. And that community, as some of our listeners might know, is transitioning from the coal-powered plant that fueled the local economy. Your piece was about how the local community college fits into that transition. What do you think what's happening in Craig says about the need for skilled workers across the state? I really wanted to focus in on Craig because it's a, I think it's a, um, good example of what communities across the state might need from their college system. I think what it says is that when it comes to economic development and retraining and attracting businesses, the community college and what the city or town is doing go really hand in hand. Uh, you can't have one without the other because community colleges are those drivers of uh, ensuring that those who need to transition out of say coal, like in Craig, uh, have the skills and ability to meet the workforce of now. With Craig, of course, like you said, they're transitioning and they really depend heavily off of that coal economy. They are almost uh, singularly driven by coal. And when things change uh, in about 10 years, it's really going to be a place where that needs a diverse economy. And the community college uh, will really help in a way to, to retrain workers in many different ways to meet the needs of the town, whatever that might be, and ensure they're able to, to make a livelihood in a very rural part of the state. What is the legislature focused on as it relates to these goals? The legislature will be extremely focused on just the pandemic recovery, I think, in a sense. It, 
Well, career training is extremely important. I think Governor Polis really believes in this work. We're at a place where the pandemic is creating a need to just get back to where we are before we build upon that. Um, the pandemic has really set us back and legislators are considering whether or not they're going to be able to put the full amount that Governor Polis wants into the budget for K-12 and higher ed. But into the future, community college leaders across the state say investment is needed post-pandemic to ensure that workers who are displaced during the pandemic have what they need to participate in the economy because so many jobs after the Great Recession went to those who were skilled, who had education beyond high school. Jason Gonzalez covers higher education for Chalkbeat Colorado. You can find a link to all of this reporting at our website, KUNC.org. Jason, thanks for your reporting on this. Thank you for having me, Henry. In past years, as the state's Joint Budget Committee works to prepare budget recommendations for the General Assembly, Colorado's public universities and colleges have typically signed a letter to the JBC advocating for an increase in higher education funding. This year, however, Metropolitan State University of Denver broke from the pack and didn't sign on to the usual letter. MSU Denver President Janine Davidson said in a statement that it wasn't in the university's best interest to sign on. As a federally recognized Hispanic-serving institution, almost half of the university's student body is comprised of students of color, the highest out of all of Colorado's universities. Citing data from the state's own Master Plan for Higher Education, which shows a significant gap in credential attainment rates for white students compared to Black and Hispanic students, respectively, MSU Denver is asking state lawmakers to invest around $50 million over the next five years to help close the gap between their current funding and the state average for other universities. Janine Davidson is president of MSU Denver, and she's with us now to talk about the state of higher education funding in Colorado and how funding disparities affect students. President Davidson, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you for having me, Erin. I want to start by talking about the budget gap that exists between your university and others around the state. According to your statement released earlier this month, the state allocates about 40 percent less funding per student to MSU Denver than it does for other universities. What is going on here? Why is MSU Denver getting less in state funding? People ask me that all the time. And, you know, I still have not been able to come up with an answer that is flattering. MSU Denver was founded about 55 years ago, and it was founded intentionally as the open access institution, which means we will take everybody who has a high school degree or a GED. We're the place you come, you know, if you didn't go to that kind of college prep school. And we're designed to serve the underserved in many ways. That's how it started off. And, you know, I just think that in, in decades past, there was a presumption that the so-called underserved did not need the kind of resources that the other kinds of schools needed. And I think that we've moved beyond that as a society. And how does this disparity affect students? We like to say that we're actually very proud of how much more we do with how much less. At MSU Denver, we're incredibly efficient. And one of the ways we're very efficient is we're very student-focused, which means our professors teach more classes than professors would teach at one of the bigger, more well-endowed schools. Um, We're not a research institution, so that helps a little bit. But at the end of the day, there are a lot of things that we need to do for 
all of our students that we're only able to do for some of our students. Things like scholarships, um, what we call wraparound services, which is advising, career services, financial advising. And frankly, Erin, you know, students who are first in their family ever to go to college, which is over 50% of our students, they need a lot of those services. I mean, you can't just ring up mom and dad and say, help me figure this out if they haven't been through it. And so we end up actually needing more resources to help those students. It's a little counterintuitive. You are asking lawmakers to invest around $50 million over the next five years to help close this funding gap. Help us understand how this funding will help MSU Denver address challenges that uh, don't necessarily face other universities. We are underfunded, and so that means that we, we aren't able to do some of the things for our students that we would like to do for all of our students. There are places in the university where we have philanthropic help that allow us to provide those wraparound services. And where we do that, we see exponentially better outcomes in terms of retention and graduation. And if we were able to do that for more of our students, obviously, we would have more retention, more graduation, more fueling of the talent pipeline in Colorado. And this is what it's all about at the end of the day. I mean, we agree with our counterparts across the state that we need more funding in higher education across the state. I think your listeners, many of them probably don't realize that Colorado ranks number 48th in the country in terms of how much we invest in a higher education. And we're not 48th by a little, we're 48th by a lot. Like we're about a billion dollars less per where we should be in order to compete with other states who are investing in their talent pipeline. So that's, that's the first thing. And then, you know, just from a business perspective, when you're underfunded, you tend to put things off. If you're living paycheck to paycheck, you know, you know you need a new refrigerator eventually, but you wait till it really conks out. You know that the water heater is going to break, but you wait till it floods your basement. Okay, so MSU Denver, after 55 years, is coming up on a lot of that stuff. We have deferred maintenance on our infrastructure. We have outdated IT. I mean, we're making it work with, you know, fixes. But my message is that we can't keep doing this. We can't just, we put all power to the engines, which means we put everything we have student facing to help our students. And then we end up deferring some of these other things. And at the end of the day, those things will start to catch up. What's the significance of not signing on to this letter to the JBC with other public colleges and universities? We are a really tight group, all the presidents and chancellors across Colorado, and they understand the challenges that MSU Denver is facing. And, you know, they've told me they respect my decision. But at the end of the day, it's really hard for all of us to come together and say much more than higher education needs more money across Colorado. So that first top line message, we absolutely agreed with. We do need more money in higher education. And if we had more money, then we would potentially be able to close this equity gap. But the problem with the letter was that they asked for more money, but they did not really significantly allocate that money to close the gap. So that was the first problem. The second problem is, frankly, we're not likely to get much more money this year. And I, we can't just keep waiting to close the equity gap just to wait for more money. And so, you know, my message to the lawmakers was, it's time we started to make a, a demonstrable effort to demonstrate to my students that they're not lesser. Governor Jared Polis is 
well known for his interest in education and his many projects and policies there. How receptive do you think he'll be to this and how supportive will he be? Well, one of the things that we really appreciate about um, Governor Polis is his support for our undocumented students. We've partnered with him on a lot of those things. I think he really understands the inequities that that happen across the state. And so I, I, I hope he'll see this as, you know, even if he can't uh, apply more money to higher education as a whole this year, that he'll understand the inequities that, that need to be addressed. Janine Davidson is the president of Metropolitan State University of Denver. President Davidson, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Every two years, the state conducts a survey of teenagers that covers everything from their health and home life to their substance abuse. Data from the latest survey taken before the pandemic shows one group in particular are abusing hard drugs more than other teens. As KUNC's Stephanie Daniel reports, one school district is turning to culture for its prevention efforts. According to the 2019 Healthy Kids Colorado survey, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander and American Indian and Alaska Native teens are using methamphetamines, prescription pain pills, and heroin at higher rates than the state average. It's why Jeffco Public Schools recently co-hosted a virtual drum-making event for Indigenous students and their families living in Metro Denver. Sid Whiting is the instructor. I'm uh, Lakota from Rosebud, South Dakota. Jeffco delivered the materials to the participants beforehand. The kits included the rawhide drumhead, the frame, the lace that ties it together, and the drumstick. These chanchegas, these drums that we're going to be working with, they do have a spirit of their own, and we have to allow and accommodate that spirit to be brought into this world. Whiting says a quick prayer to purify and bless the drums. Then it's time to get to work. First thing I need you to do is lay your drum head out flat. The event is part of Jeffco's federally funded Indian education program. It supports culturally responsive education for American Indian, Native Hawaiian, and Alaska Native students who make up 1.5 percent of the student population. It was really cool to learn about. Delia Sherman is a junior at Stanley Lake High School in Westminster, and her father is an enrolled member of the Flanger Santee Sioux tribe. And the instructor told us a lot about like how we put our spirit into our drums to make them like our own. Sherman is also on the Indian Education Student Council. She joined last spring after schools were closed because of the pandemic. She meets with the council weekly and has attended classes like powwow dance. Ever since I was little, I was always kind of like confused being like half Native American and half not Native American. Sherman felt kind of torn learning about Native Americans in school. So being able to be more involved in the community and talk to other people who deal with the same issues and things like that has uh, helped me a lot. And I've learned more about myself and about like where I am in the world. Increasing these cultural connections is the foundation of the program's substance abuse prevention efforts. The two-year program received money from the state's opioid response grant and got started during the 2019-2020 school year. Adriana Brady is the district's prevention specialist. Our goal is to provide culturally responsive prevention services to increase uh, protective factors related to reducing incidences of opioid use disorders, other substance use disorders, and suicide attempts. 
This includes learning about indigenous food and hands-on events like drum making and creating ledger art. That was a tribute to the narrative drawing, you know, on paper or cloth that is practiced by Lakota, Dakota, Nakota, or other Plains tribes. While data in the 2019 Healthy Kids Colorado survey is concerning for these students, Brady says the program is more focused on helping teens make healthy choices. But then also looking at our indigenous identity and our traditions, cultures, or practices uh, to strengthen us and remind our students and families that these traditions are a form of resilience. The survey also shows the percentage of indigenous youth who felt sad or hopeless or seriously considered or attempted suicide was also above the state average. It's why the program provides culturally relevant coping tools for mental health, too. Turn to us about how we can provide, like, maybe a cedar blessing or maybe say a prayer for them uh, in our native language and uh, to help them through maybe difficult times. Again, this data was collected before the pandemic. Experts say the stress it's caused has only increased substance abuse and mental health issues. So the Indian Education Program has addressed coronavirus concerns as well. We're trying to get our voices out there, let families know that we're here to support them. This particular drum here. Back on Zoom, Sid Whiting is wrapping up the drum making event. It has a distinct sound to it. It's made of alkyte, which is extremely thick. Junior Delia Sherman has made a couple drums now, and it gets easier each time. And she says participating in these events and the student council meetings has kept her linked to her friends. And so I think it's really important that this Indian education program is connecting these kids who can sometimes feel kind of isolated and confused and give them that outlet to learn about themselves and learn about their culture and things. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC. Colorado is home to Time Magazine's first ever Kid of the Year, Gitanjali Rao. The 16-year-old lives in Lone Tree, but she's making waves all over the world as an innovator, scientist, and a leader. KUNC Sari Williams spoke with her about how she's creating solutions to real-world problems. And Sari joins us now. Hello. Hey, Erin. So I know about Time's Person of the Year Award, but Kid of the Year? I have never heard of that. Is this a first? Yeah. So Time Magazine, they started naming a Person of the Year in 1927. Then in 2019, they named Greta Thunberg for the Person of the Year, and she was the youngest ever at the time. She was 16. So last year, they decided to create a Kid of the Year Award. And Gatanjali Rao, she goes by Anjali, she was chosen along with four honorees out of 5,000 kids in the U.S. That's a pretty big deal to be the first ever Kid of the Year. So tell us about Anjali. She's clearly amazing, and her interests are really varied. She's developed a device to measure opioids in your blood. So if you're taking prescription opioids, this is a way to know if you're getting addicted or not. Then she made an anti-bullying app, uh, which is, you know, a totally different type of thing to do. And she's leading workshops um, all over the world that help kids become innovators too. These are all such timely and relevant things, and they're such important issues as well. Yeah, so Time Magazine, they chose kids making a positive impact. There's just no question. She certainly is. She um, also developed a handheld lead detection system, and that was inspired by the Flint water crisis. It's like these problems that you know exist, but you know nobody's doing anything about it. And it seems so unfair and so annoying that other people across the country are having to go through something like this, but you're not having to go through something like this. How does she choose what problem she wants to work on? She really knows what she is passionate about. That that was clear. And 
And then she has the support to follow those feelings. I was really fortunate and I am really fortunate to have parents who let me really go after my passions, help me find out what my passions are instead of being forced into it. It's her passions that led her to compete in science fairs. And while it's clear that she gets really excited about the competition, uh, her motivation that comes from the impact that she could make. There's no real deadline. This is what I love to do, and I should continue to do it, even past the science or even past my competition. So don't get stressed out. She's gotten to work at the lab at the University of Colorado, Denver. Uh, she describes it as being like a kitchen with six refrigerators. And, um, you know, that's that's given her the chance to do research-level science with things like protein gels and the support that she needs when, when it doesn't work. Even after the 50th time, something still goes wrong. <laughs> the last time I did the gel tour, and I was so sad, but it's okay. I think it's incredible that someone of her age is able to get access to these laboratories. She said that giving kids access to lab environments is happening more and more, and it's just a really good thing. You had the chance to speak with her. Um, what do you think is unique about Anjali? What stood out to me besides her ability to know what she's passionate about, is just this amazing optimism. She can take any situation that would stress most of it out, and she turns that into something that she wants to solve. Like, every problem becomes something that she wants to create a solution for. Our generation is growing up in a place where we're seeing problems that have never existed before, but also still continue to exist. And it's up to us to take control of that opportunity and realize that innovation is a necessity, not an option. She says it's about taking small steps, lots and lots and lots of small steps towards something that you're passionate about. So my biggest thing for you is find something you're passionate about and go for it because you can make a difference in this world, even if it's something small. Everything Every little thing that you do makes a difference. Well, I have to ask for our listeners, does she do normal teenager Colorado things too? Yeah. So she's lived in a few states, but she says that Colorado is her favorite. And um, so she doesn't ski too much, but she says she really likes to hike. Siri Williams, thank you so much. Thank you, Erin. You can find out much more about Katanjali Rao at our website, KUNC.org. And that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.